Hello everybody. We have started a new series called The Glorious Church and this is part two today. Last week was the introduction and we are taking this from Ephesians 5 verse 27. Let me read it. That he, talking about Jesus, might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. As we read about what God has to say about the church, especially at the end of time, we see a glorious church filled with spiritual power and shining as a light in a world of darkness. That's our future, and it's right for us to be excited about that. Now, I know and we acknowledge that we're not there yet. In fact, we're a long ways off. In fact, there's a lot that's sick in the church today. So what's the goal of this series? One, to see what the church is supposed to be like according to the scriptures. And second, to talk about how we get to where God wants us to be. Now, some people might be asking, but Mike, why are we talking about the church? Shouldn't our focus be on Jesus? Yes, our focus should always be on Jesus. But it's the church that God's designed to exalt Jesus and to point the way to Jesus and here on the earth. And if the church is sickly, then there's no way that Jesus is going to be exalted the way uh, God intends for that to happen. Just a couple other things here. Just a clarification on what is the church. I think probably most people know this, but it's probably important to mention it again. The body of Christ or the church consists of all true believers. Now, I say true believers because probably every local church has people in it that are nominal Christians. In other words, they're in name only. They may realize it. They may not realize it. And that's another topic. So we, we need to establish that. A second thing, we need to kind of also say that when the scriptures speak of church, it's usually in one of two contexts. First of all, there is the worldwide church, and that consists of all believers everywhere. Here in the United States, in France, in China, in Africa, you know, no matter where. And then there's the local church. And to be honest, probably about 95% of the time that the church is mentioned in the scriptures, it's referring to the local church. Because it's the local church where God joins together believers and disciples to grow together and to reach out to the world around them. That's where we grow and shine. And so you could say that local ch ch churches are really the expression of the worldwide body of Christ. For us to say, oh, I'm a part of the worldwide church, but not be a part of the local church is a serious uh, disconnect there. Okay, so today we want to start talking about how God sees the church. What is it supposed to be? And we want to just, today we want to focus in, and we'll probably continue this a little bit next week too, but the church is a community. This is foundational in understanding what we're supposed to be. So let's start at the very beginning of the church, which would be what? The book of Acts, right? And um, Acts 1, 120 disciples gathered together to wait for what the Lord had promised, which was the receiving of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
And then in Acts 2, um, you know, the day of Pentecost, uh, Peter preaches a sermon to many people who have kind of gathered to see what's going on. And 3,000 men and women were added to that initial group of about 120 believers. So let's just kind of look at Acts 2. Let's start in verse 40. It says, And with many other words, he, speaking of Peter, solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. So the church gets started basically in verse um, verse uh, 41, right? And, uh, and that's important. So now let's see, how does God describe the church? And we can kind of read on, starting in verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. All those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. Okay, so here's a description of the early church in its purest form before all sorts of other things kind of got, you know, got involved. So there's a lot here in these five, six verses. Uh, we can't talk about all that, uh, at least not today. We probably will in the weeks to come. But one thing I want us to kind of make note of is that we can see that the church here in Jerusalem from the very beginning was a community. When it says that they were devoted to fellowship, the Greek word there is koinonia. And, and, and that's really a very difficult word to translate. Some people call it fellowship, some translators. Some will call it communion. But, you know, both of those are inadequate. Communion, you think of something maybe like the Lord's Supper. Fellowship, you think, oh yeah, we're kind of, let's uh, kind of all gather together and uh, have a volleyball game today. No, koinonia was much deeper than that. Uh, so, so, some words, so, some translations will call it a partnership, but that almost sounds kind of like business relationship. And it's not that at all. So let me just give you a little background on the word koinonia. It was originally used to describe a group of people in a certain occupation or business that sort of banded together for the sake of uh, helping one another out. We'll use the example of fishermen because the early disciples, a lot of them were fishermen. And uh, so let's say if there could be a group of maybe 10, 12, 15, uh, we don't know exactly how much, but a smaller number of fishermen that would form a koinonia. That's the Greek word. And what that meant is that, well, you, you know how it is with fishing. You know, uh, some days you catch some, some days you don't, right? And, uh, and that was true even if fishing is your occupation. 
And so the way it would work is that, let's say we have 15 people, they all go out fishing one day, and at the end of the day, what's gonna happen? Some are probably gonna catch more than others, right? So what they would do is they would pull their fish together and then they would divide it equally, in this case, among 15 fishermen. That was because they had formed a kononia. But it even goes further than that. What if uh, uh, there's a storm and three or four of them break their nets? You know what? The kononia pitches in and buys them nets because who knows, it might be you the next time with a broken net. Same thing with a broken boat or a leaky boat. Now, this requires a lot of trust, doesn't it? And it, tries, it requires a relationship. Because if I see my brother doing fishing and I see him coming out at 9, 10 o'clock in the morning and I'm out at 5 or 6 in the morning, I could get a little resentful because he always comes up short on his fish, you know, uh, or if someone is always breaking their nets, you know. Uh, so, so a committed relationship where there's transparency, where there's trust and even care for one another is required. Well, the early disciples felt that koinonia described themselves as much as anything. They were a koinonia, a fellowship, a partnership, a community. And the church is supposed to be a koinonia. In fact, probably I'm going to use the word community and koinonia interchangeably here because they're both very important. So just in this Acts 2 passage, you know, five or six verses, how do we see koinonia? Well, first of all, it says that they devoted themselves to koinonia, or to fellowship, you know. And that word devote means that they gave themselves to. It wasn't just a passing thing. They studied together, you know, uh, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They prayed together. They broke bread together. They shared their possessions, as anyone might have need, because that's what a koinonia does. They were together day by day. They continued with one mind. In other words, they, they worked at having one mind. And a little bit later, we can see one heart, one soul as well. They met in large groups, like at the temple or outside the temple. And they met in homes. They took their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And what was the result? There in verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day. Actually, day by day is a real key phrase. We see it twice there. It wasn't something that just happened on Sunday morning for in a two-hour time slot. It was day by day they lived out their life following Jesus and being a light to the world. And what happened was that people saw the quality of life that they were experiencing. They saw the friendships. They saw the joy and the rejoice, the, the joy and the rejoicing. They, they saw people preferring one another. And that opened their hearts up to ask questions. Of course, they couldn't really experience koinonia in that trusting, loving relationship without knowing Jesus. That opened them up. Many times, people are not even open to hearing about the Lord. But community, koinonia, as described here in the scripture, opens people's eyes to at least consider what's going on in the church. And so the result was the Lord was adding to their number day by day. It was a result of the koinonia or the community. Okay, let's just, uh, let's just go to 
Acts 4, verse 32. And kind of very similar thing. And I'm skipping a lot, as, as you are aware of, I'm sure. But at least to give you the flavor of what's happening. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So we saw one mind, now one heart, one soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to, to them. Now you might say, oh, is that communism? Is that what was happening? No, no. Was it communism? Let, let me explain. When it says all things were common to them, <clears throat> it, the Greek word is koinos. And you're right, it's connected with koinonia. And it really meant to put things on the table to share. It didn't mean that it had to be shared, but it was that you take it all and divide it all up, although in some cases that might have been necessary. But the implication was, it's not mine. It belongs to the Lord. And we've talked about this before, that you know that when I've become a follower of Jesus, everything I have is no longer mine. I'm just a steward of it. They belong to Jesus. And that's what, that's the idea here is that Everything I have is available to you. That was part of the koinonia here. And so basically what they're saying is every part of my life is connected to you. Okay, um, chapter 5, verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. We see it again, okay? Why? I think well, obviously, the, the, uh, the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus was a, a very important part of it, you know, central. But also, they, they observed their lives, they're sharing their lives together in Koinonia. Uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 42, it says, And every day, notice we keep seeing day by day, every day, constantly, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And then verse 7 of chapter 6, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Actually, I kind of like that where it says describing someone following Jesus as being obedient to the faith. Uh, but uh, this, is, this is what was happening. People were coming to know the Lord. And in the early church, one of the reasons they were living together in community. Okay, let's kind of uh, go to another passage and look at this in a different angle. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. And coming to him, that is Jesus, as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Let me just kind of pause here. Uh, it actually explains a little bit later in verse 6, 7, and 8. But one of the Old Testament prophecies that, was, um, that everyone knew was that the Messiah, the king that was going to come, was going to be a cornerstone of what God was going to be building. And so this is a reference to the cornerstone when it says that you have come to a, uh, you have, uh, how does it say? You have come to a uh, choice and precious stone in the sight of God. Okay, then it goes on and says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house 
for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here we see that not only is Jesus the cornerstone a living stone, but all of us are living stones as well. When we become genuine believers, truly born again, regenerated, we become alive. Remember in Ephesians 2 it says, you know, we were once dead in our sins and trespasses. And then a few verses later it says, but we were made alive with Christ. You know, once dead, we're now alive. So we go from being a cold dead stone to a living stone. He lives in us. We are alive. And, get this, we are now being built together into this spiritual house. And it's the house of God. Everything in the Old Testament, you know, the houses of God, the tabernacle, the house of Solomon, you know, the temple of Solomon, all that, that was all just a shadow of the house of God that God is building today, where He's going to be worshipped, where there's going to be, you know, because that's what you do in the house of God, you know, and, uh, and so this is going to be a house made of not dead stones, but living stones. You and me. And we're being built together. And that's a process, being built together. The church is being described here, brothers and sisters. Now let's go to Ephesians 2. You can kind of keep your fingers on 1 Peter 1 though. But in Ephesians 2, same idea is being talked about it. Let's start with verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There it is again. Exactly what we were talking about in First, uh, first Peter uh, 2. And then it goes on, it says, in whom the whole building, this whole spiritual house, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So now we're kind of, we, we, we've got another phrase to describe what's going on. We're being fitted together. And then it goes on, verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the, in the Spirit. So, this is talking about the church, the local church, not the worldwide church, but the local church where we are being fitted together, we're being built together. God is building community or koinonia among us. That's what Jesus meant when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Because you see, when God's people have been built together, fit together, the kingdom of darkness loses its power over us. There's a divine protection. So God's purpose for all of us is to be built together, to be fitted together with others. Now if we go back to 1 Peter 2, let's kind of jump down to verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race. He's talking about this group of living stones being built together. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A 
people for God's own possession. Oh, wow, we could talk a lot just about those phrases. But let's go on. This is the one I really want to focus on here. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when we are built together, we become a light. You know, a marvelous light in the midst of darkness. So not only is there a divine protection, but there's also a spiritual power to shine when we become the church as God describes here, when we become a koinonia, a community. And may God continue His work of fitting and building us together. Now, it's not always easy, is it? Why? Because uh, stones, when they're being fitted together, they're chipped away, sometimes even hammered. They're sanded. It's all required. About 10, or oh, maybe probably 12 years ago, we redid the fireplace in our living room, Judy and I. And, uh, and we wanted a stone fireplace that kind of goes all the way up to the ceiling and everything. And uh, we, uh, we hired Pablo, who is a master stone worker, to do our fireplace. And actually, he gave us a real good deal, you know. Uh, and I can still remember when he came, he had a, uh, uh, a truck full of rocks. And he just dumped it in our backyard, our side yard. And it was a pile of rocks. It didn't look like a fireplace, did it? Nope, not at all. But he had to fit each one of them exactly in place. So he was constantly going in and out of the house, trying to find a stone that would work just right for this, this particular position. Many times he'd go out, he'd get the hammer, he'd start chipping away because it needed, it, it was almost ready to fit, but it needed to be kind of, you know, chipped away a little bit. In some cases, uh, it needed to be chipped a whole lot, and so he got a big sledgehammer and went boom, 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 you know, and trying to break up the rocks a little bit. Sometimes that happens to us. And then even once he kind of got the stones all in the shape that he wanted it, there was a sanding process. In fact, when I would look out uh, in the uh, when I'd look out in the yard, uh, sometimes I couldn't even see the rock pile. All I saw was just kind of cloud of dust because he and his uh, uh, two co-workers were busy cutting and sanding and hammering and chipping away. And that's really a picture of what God's doing to us. He's trying to fit us together in this spiritual household, you know, and uh, in the local church that God has called us to. And, uh, and honestly, that requires self-denial at times. It requires denying self, doesn't it? You know, do you like to be chipped away? Do you like to be sanded? Especially just to be able to kind of fit in with your brothers and sisters. No, none of us do. But by God's grace and His power working in our inner man, it will happen. In fact, it has to happen. That is what God's doing when He says, or Jesus is doing, I will build my church. I'm going to fit you together. By the way, running away or withdrawing is not what God wants us to do. Okay, let's kind of jump to one other thing that I think is important. Love, agape love, is what holds the church community together. In other words, this isn't just some type of intellectual commitment we make to one another to be fitted in. Well, I don't like it, especially the people I'm being fitted in with, but, you know, I guess that's what I have to do. No, love. And it's agape love. One of those 
one of a number of words that the Greek uses for love, but this is the love of Christ, the type of love that God had for us when he went to the cross and died for us. That is the type of love that God wants us to have for one another. By the way, it's only available to, to followers of Jesus. That's important. Let's go to Ephesians 4, um, starting in verse, well, let's, let's look at verse 15. We're kind of jumping in the middle of a passage, but it's talking about the body of Christ being built together. And it says in verse 5, But speaking the truth in love, that's agape love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted, oh, there's that word again, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In other words, this whole body, this whole, um, you know, temple is got to be saturated or you could say, it's, it's held together by agape love. Now, I should probably just point out here that in 1 Peter 2, it describes the church as a house that's being built. Same thing with Ephesians 2. Here, Ephesians 4, he's talking about as a body. We all are different parts. But we're all fitted together. I mean, we're all kind of connected, aren't we? Exactly. You know, we're not a bunch of body parts. And uh, in some ways... The body of Christ tells us something that a temple or a holy house doesn't. Because, you know, the body is always moving, right? But yet it's held together at the same time. Isn't that a beautiful illustration of who we are as the church? See, again, like we talked about last week, the church is not a church building that we go to. It's the people of God being fitted and built together and held together by agape love. Ephesians 3, just the chapter right before that. Uh, let's, let's kinda, this is a prayer that Paul has for the Ephesians. Um, really beautiful. Let's start in verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. Now, there's a reason he wants this to be strengthened with power in their man. So that Christ may dwell or live in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, that's agape love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What is he saying there? That if we're going to reach the fullness of God, it's got to be because we're grounded and rooted in a copy love. And that, and that we've got to understand with all the other saints, because it's a community thing, what is the uh, breadth and length and height and depth of love. So you see, this is... This is... This is what holds us together. This is what we share with one another. Actually, that word rooted, when it says rooted or, and grounded, uh, actually, actually the word grounded 
it means in Spanish it's uh, cimentados. It means cemented in. And actually, that's the way uh, literally this Greek word meant. It means to be part of that foundation. It's got to be in love. May we learn to be rooted and grounded in agape love for one another. It's agape love that's going to hold us together. That's why Jesus, on his last night with the disciples, you know, there in the upper room, he gave a farewell message, and over and over he was saying, Love one another. It was agape love. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. See, the old commandment was, you know, uh, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Now he says, this is a new commandment. He puts in agape love and says, how much should we love one another? Even as he loves us. And then get this in verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love if you have love for one another. Just like what we saw in the book of Acts, that community, uh, sharing life together and loving one another, it caused many, many people to kind of ask questions. And, and likewise here, Jesus is saying the same thing. When we love, truly love one another, people are going to know that we are his disciples. Then if we kind of jump down to verse, or chapter 15, same Message, same evening, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another, how much? Just as I have loved you. And then verse 17, same chapter, chapter 15. This I command you, that you love one another. Jesus is trying to get this across to the disciples. He was telling them, listen, you're, I'm leaving but you could become the body of Christ. You could become my body. You could become the church. You could become living stones built together and fitted together. But you have to love one another. And it's interesting. All three places here, he, he calls it a commandment. Very rarely does Jesus talk about this I command you. This is a commandment. But loving one another, yes. It's not an option. Love by the way, is more than just some sentimental feeling. True love emerges and develops as we, what? Spend time together. As we're working together. As we're being fitted together. As we are experiencing koinonia. In other words, it's easy to have a sentimental feeling about all oh, my brothers and sisters in China who I never have to work with. And, and, th and that's a good that we have that feeling and that burden from the Lord. But true koinonia happens as we begin to love one another and that as we're being fitted together and built together. So we care for one another. We prefer one another. We encourage one another. We have patience for one another. We support one another. Actually, and we'll probably touch on this in another week, but there are, depending on the translation you use, 32 different one another's. Now, it's true that love one another is mentioned more than the others, but there's 31 others. And actually, if you really examine them, they're all part of loving one another. Uh, true agape love is expressed in action with sacrifice. 
again, it's not just some distant sentimental feeling. So in conclusion, and we have a lot more to cover on this next time, but let's just kind of talk about the main points here. The church is called to be a community, a koinonia. Most of everything else we talk about concerning the church in the weeks ahead and what it's supposed to be is based on this. Skip this and we don't have the church that God describes in the Bible. In fact, the other things we talk about aren't going to make a lot of sense. Furthermore, we could say it this way, a lack of community, a lack of community in the local church is going to lead to lifeless, dry Christianity. Error, imbalance, even carnality, and all sorts of spiritual tangents and distractions. You might be saying, well, that kind of sounds a lot like the church today. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons why. The early church began with community. Therefore, the church became a light and many, many were added into the kingdom of God. Therefore, there was life and joy and spiritual power in the church. We also talked about how we're called to be living stones that are being built together, fitted together. And let me just ask you, are you willing? And then finally, agape love only possible through a living relationship with Christ is what hold these stones together. It's the glue. It's the cement. That's why over and over we're called to love one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not just left us to figure out what church is supposed to be. You've given us so much instruction in your word. You've given us examples in your word. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that we become truly living stones that are being fitted and held together by agape love and built together. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would understand and grow in what you've called us to be, a community, a koinonia. And Lord, teach us more about loving one another. Amen.